1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 12, says this. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testify about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are among all people most to be pitied. This is probably one of the most challenging sections to our, our Western church experience. It, it's difficult because the way Paul is challenging Corinth, in a lot of ways, it challenges us. You see, the New Testament expectation of Jesus' followers is a radical change in our motivation that leads to a radical change in our lifestyle. That's normal Christianity according to the New Testament. Now the Corinthians, we know, we've seen, they, they wanted radical experiences to be sure. There's no doubt about that. But they often wanted those experiences for the same self-centered motivation as their pagan counterparts. And this is often what our church gatherings look like. I'm not talking about the kinds of expressions or the kinds of manifestations that happen. Uh, the, the motivations is what I'm talking about. Often we as modern Western Christians appoint, uh, uh, approach Christianity based on what it does for me. And we make two mistakes in that. One, we approach it instead of approaching him. Because Christianity isn't an it. It's a him. Christ. It's about him. But also we think this is about me. And the irony is when we're trying to pursue Christian things for me, for what I can get, what ends up happening is we get neither the Christian things nor do we get what we actually desire. We don't actually find what we're looking for. And so Paul's kind of challenged these Corinthians, and I think it's important that we recognize that maybe we're a bit more like the Corinthians than we want to admit. And what I love about this section, as hard as it is to talk about, I love the fact that Paul just will not let the Corinthians, the Holy Spirit won't let us, but Paul won't let the, whole, the, the, the Corinthians devalue the importance of Christ's bodily resurrection. How it's foundational to everything we believe, to everything we hope for, to any kind of desire that we might have to, to live a life now that would be pleasing to God, that would be what we were made to live, all of it is dependent upon whether or not Christ rose from the dead. It is that serious. It is that important. And he won't let them just kind of go, well, yeah, it's a good principle. Now, the Corinthians probably weren't like us. Uh, in our secular uh, day and age, our temptation is to think people just don't rise from the dead. That's just nuts. There isn't any kind of supernatural stuff that happens. 
Our default position as Westerners is materialistic. We think, okay, you're born, you're conceived, you're born, you live, you die, that's it. And so if being a Christian can help you in that in-between time, fine. But that's the way we tend to look at it. The Corinthians wouldn't have been that way. They weren't materialistic like that. They would have had a mindset that was more of, okay, um, so, so maybe Jesus rose from the dead. Maybe he did bodily. Maybe he didn't. But you know what? He seems to have taught some really good stuff, and he seemed to have this power and authority that no other Greek or Roman gods had. So maybe he's the one we want to follow. And besides, as we begin to follow him and we believe in him, uh, his spirit begins to work in us, and we like it. So let's just kind of keep doing this. And Paul's saying, and so, so what would happen is there were some in their midst that were kind of saying, the resurrection really isn't that important. It doesn't really matter that much. And Paul's going, no. It's the most important. Everything that we believe is based on the reality of Christ's resurrection. And so, so here's what we're going to see today. We're going to see three reasons for the necessity of Jesus' resurrection. In the section we read this morning already, here's what we see in verses 12 to 9, that his resurrection actually validates our faith. Christ's resurrection actually validates our faith. Our faith is a bit foolish if Christ isn't risen from the dead. This is Paul's point. In verses 12 to 14, Paul makes it really clear, trusting Jesus is pointless if Jesus isn't alive. Look at verse, uh, look at verse uh, <clears throat> 12 and 13 again. Notice he says, hey, you, you, Christ, we proclaim Christ is raised from the dead, is what he's saying. So how can you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? He says in verse 13, if there's no resurrection, that means Christ has not been raised. In other words, if you say that bodily resurrection doesn't happen, maybe spiritually something happens to us after we die, there's an afterlife, but it's got nothing to do with our physical bodies. If you believe that, then guess what? Christ isn't raised. And he says really clearly in verse 14, if Christ isn't raised, notice he says, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. It's futile, it's empty, it's stupid to put it in common vector. You're being dumb to believe in Jesus. You're not making any sense. It's pointless to believe. It's pointless to say, you know what, life's hard, but I trust Jesus. If the Jesus you trust isn't alive, it's absolutely pointless. In fact, Paul's saying, if he isn't physically, bodily alive, your trusting in him is foolish. Now, as I say this, you're kind of going, yeah, okay, yeah, I guess. But stay with me. Because I think as we unpack what Paul talks about, as we begin to, to, to see what's beneath his, his logic, we're going to see a couple of things. One, we're going to see it's absolutely true. It's pointless to believe in Jesus uh, if, if, if he's not risen again. But also we're going to see, listen, that most of us here, sitting here right now, don't really live for Jesus. So he says in verse 15, he says, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testify that God has raised Christ and if he's not risen, then that's not true. Now, now the, here's the reality. The apostles claimed very clearly that our sins are forgiven because Jesus died. He took the penalty for our sins on the cross. But also because 
he rose from the dead. If he died, even, even dying the way he did in this, in this kind of beautiful, self-sacrificial way, even if all the sayings of Jesus were true, like, like him saying, God, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they do, or into your hands, Father, commit my spirit, and everything that he says in between there, even if he said all those things, if he's still dead, his death didn't really accomplish anything. This is why Paul says in verse 17, your faith is futile, you're still in your sins. Listen to how Paul explains the gospel, the good news about Jesus. And he's wrong about this if Jesus isn't alive. The gospel isn't true. Look what he says in, verse, in Romans chapter 4, verse 23. I'm reading from the New Living Translation where Paul writes, And when God counted Abram as righteous, it wasn't just for Abram's, Abraham's benefit. It was recorded for our benefit too. He's talking about the Old Testament story of Abraham, of course. He says, assuring us that God will also count us as righteous if we believe in him. Notice, here's what we're believing. The one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead. Jesus was handed over to die because of our sins and he was raised to life to make us right with God. See, when Jesus is crucified, he's crucified unjustly, isn't he? He's crucified because the people who were meant to believe in God didn't want to receive him as Messiah. And the Greeks who believed in all kinds of God thought, well, he's obviously not a God because he can't stop himself from being killed. So let him die. It's politically expedient. So in other words, everybody was against this innocent man, Jesus. And what that shows is the direct wretchedness of all people, religious and non-religious. So when he dies for our sins, he dies because we as humanity sinned against him, but he also, listen, he's taken a penalty for our sin according to what we see on the cross. The three hours of darkness, you remember that? Darkness speaking of the wrath of God. But none of it means anything unless he rose from the dead. Because in his resurrection, we're then justified. Because Christ being resurrected and then after that ascended to the right hand of the Father is God's way of saying who Jesus is and what he's done is enough. And so if he didn't raise from the dead, even if you believe in a God, how do you know you're actually right with that God? How would you have any idea? Paul's point is you wouldn't. Paul's point is, listen, trusting in Jesus would be pointless if he's not alive, and what we've told you about Jesus is wrong if he isn't alive. But then he gets even more serious. Look at verse 18. In verse 18 he says, those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. In other words, our loved ones who had great faith in Jesus and then died, that's it. There's nothing left for them. That's sad, isn't it? It's heavy to think about. One of the things that comforts us as believers is that when someone who's beloved to us, who's also a believer, passes away, we have the comfort of, you know what? We're not saying goodbye. We're saying see you later. We're going to be with him forever. But if Christ didn't rise, Paul's saying that's not true. It is goodbye forever. Then he says something, I think, that we radically underestimate. In verse 19, he says... If in Christ we hope in this life only, we are among, most, uh, among all people most to be pitied. Does that make sense? Do you understand why he would say that? See, living for Jesus is miserable if Jesus isn't alive. Now, 
Some of you might go, yeah, I, I get that conceptually, but do you get it practically? Here's what we talk about. Think, about. think about some of these people who are living for Jesus. Think about the missionary who sacrifices comforts and relationships to get the gospel to an unreached people group. Or the doctor who ends up catching a deadly virus because they're trying to help those who have no medical care. Or the family who decides not to take holidays for a year so they can fund those missions and those doctors. Or what about, listen, what about just simply the parents who pass by promotions and paychecks so that they can work part-time, so that they can be with their kids every time they get out from school, so that they can invest in them so their kids can know Jesus. If Christ hasn't risen, all that is foolish. That's what Paul's saying. And here's the thing that makes us really uncomfortable, is that the reality is, we want our faith to be validated intellectually. We want to know we have intellectual credibility to believe in the historic resurrection of Jesus. And there is. There really is. But what Paul's talking about here is, what, what he's trying to give the Corinthians is, listen, some of you are thinking the resurrection doesn't happen, and you're thinking, or it doesn't really matter, and you're thinking that because you actually haven't suffered very much. You haven't suffered very much for the gospel. You haven't given up very much for the gospel. I've got to tell you, I, I'm going to be completely transparent and honest here. If I found out today that there isn't a resurrection, I would still think that Jesus had some really good things to say and that me being a Christian helped in some ways, but I would quit the ministry right now. Bye. I'm going back to Cali. 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 And I'm going there. If you, you have to be old to understand that reference. And I'm going there to make some money and to relax and just enjoy life, because you know what? I only got probably, I don't know, if I'm lucky, I got 15, 20 years. Why should I sacrifice? Why should I give up if there isn't a hope beyond the grave? If there isn't a resurrection, why should I make this sacrifice? I shouldn't. It'd be dumb. It'd be pointless. Why, listen, seriously, why would you work five long days a week just to have another long Sunday of service? What a waste of time if there's no eternal reward. What a waste of time if this life is indeed a vapor and there isn't a resurrection. This is Paul's point. See, here's the, here's the reality. He's challenging the Corinthians about the necessity of the resurrection. He's saying, listen, this is what validates your faith. And if you aren't holding on to this, you probably aren't walking by faith as you should. You're probably not willing to make the kinds of sacrifices that actually demonstrate who Jesus is. Paul was able to write this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Listen, he says, we know who raised the Lord Jesus, he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus, and bring us with you into his presence so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light, momentary affliction. 
I mean, we would never go to the house or the Hubbards and say, hey, it's light momentary friction, man. But, you know, they have an opportunity to, to land there eventually. We're praying they can land there. One of the cool things that we're seeing with Alan Lindsay is they're beginning to turn that corner. They've always known it in their heads as the Hubbards know it in their heads. But when you're in that hellish situation, it's hard to say this. But it doesn't mean it's not true. This temporary light affliction, he says, is preparing for us an eternal way of glory beyond all comparison. Do you realize there's not any kind of difficulty or suffering that you go through as a Jesus follower that isn't going to echo benefit in eternity? Nothing. All things work together for the good of those who love God and are the called according to his purposes. Your suffering may not find you a benefit this side of heaven. You might, you might even get to heaven and go, I don't understand, God, why you let all that, that two decades, three decades, or whatever it was of suffering happen in my life. I'm not too sure until you get introduced to the people that it impacted the people who continued to walk by faith because they saw you were continuing to walk by faith because you were assured that Jesus is alive, they're assured that Jesus is alive. Are you getting me? The resurrection validates our faith. The faith that it validates is a faith that says, Lord, I want to live for you. This is what Paul's trying to get the Corinthians to see. But also, listen... The resurrection also, it frames our theology. I know that that word makes some people nervous, theology. It simply just means our knowledge of God, our ideas about God. And what he says here in verses 20 to 28 gets really deep, and we're only going to kind of splash our feet in the water a little bit. It's a good word picture for the day, splashing our feet in some cool water. But there's three main things I want you to see that I think Paul wants to bring out. There's loads here that we could have dove into. But three main things I want you to see about how the resurrection, the body of the resurrection of Jesus frames our theology. The first one is this. It's about God's grace. In the resurrection, we see God's grace. Notice what Paul does. He compares Adam and Jesus. He did this also in Romans 5. But look at 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. Paul says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He's the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. That's those who have died believing. First fruits. Now, in the Old Testament, God, was, God commanded his people, Israel, to bring the first fruits of the harvest. So what they would do is that the first time they would harvest, the, the early, earliest harvest they would have, they would take the first bit of that. They were meant to bring the best of that. They would present it at the temple as, God, we're bringing this to you. And the offering of the first fruits was to say, Lord, this is the best that you've provided, and we're bringing this to you believing that where this is, there's more to come. That this is kind of your, our way of acknowledging that we believe you've promised to provide what we need. That's the idea of first fruits, okay? So Jesus is the first fruit. His resurrection is, in a sense, is God's way of saying, I promise what I've done with Jesus, he will do for you. He's the first fruits. His resurrection represents God's promise to us that he's going to raise us from the dead. But also look at verse 21. He says, Paul says, For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. 
For as in Adam all die, that's not Adam Maggio, don't blame him. That is Adam as in Adam and Eve, just in case you didn't know. Okay? So as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Now, here's what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that all of us as human beings are in Adam. You can say, I don't believe in Adam and Eve. I think that's just mythology. I don't think it's really true. That's your choice. You don't have to believe it. It doesn't mean it's not true. You are still in Adam. So what Adam's done for us is Adam has given us his death. Adam chose, Adam and Eve chose to rebel against God. And we have, as, as our ancestors, we've inherited that same rebellious nature, that desire to go against God. We've inherited that, and it always leads to death, which is why the statistics on death are sobering. One out of every one person dies because we all sin. That's what it means to be an Adam. So I want you to think about this. Adam, in a perfect environment in the Garden of Eden, Adam in a place where he had the perfect environment, the perfect spouse, everyone here is going, oh, that would be so nice. <laughs> the perfect environment, the perfect spouse, and God walking with him daily in the Garden of Eden. The perfect thing you could ask for, everything, the, the right kinds of challenges so he could grow, the right kind of, uh, um, uh, the right kind of, of a place to find rest, everything that he would need to fill the earth was there, and Adam and Eve were still deceived and they blew it. Do you think you, who weren't perfect like Adam was perfect before he blew it, do you think you're going to make a better choice? You wouldn't make a better choice, which is why God sent Jesus. We need someone who can not just bring death as our represent, representative, but also someone who can bring life. And so what Paul's saying, listen, is this, that God's very grace, the grace of God, what that means, it's defined by, it's framed by Christ's death and resurrection. He became sin for us that we might become the very righteousness of God. This is what the Bible says in Romans chapter 5, uh, verse 17. I'm going to read from the New Living Translation again. It says, listen, for the sin of this one Adam caused death to rule over many, but even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness for all who receive it will, uh, will live in triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. This is, this is where our theology is based on. If Christ isn't raised from the dead, we have no access to grace. Our access to God's grace, our, our assurance that we have God's grace is because Christ lives. But there's more. What about God's justice? Because we can think as individuals, I'm so glad that God's forgiven me. I'm so, I've received Christ and I know that I have God's grace because of Christ. But this world's still bad. Wicked stuff still happens. What about that? Look at verse 23. When Paul talks about, listen, when Paul talks about this resurrection, he says it happens this way. But eat in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So when he says, all, all in Christ will be resurrected. He doesn't mean all are going to be resurrected to life. There is a resurrection to damnation. Very serious thing to think about. But Christ does all the resurrecting. And what he's saying about here is that, that after, what happens is Christ, when he returns, he resurrects us who've died in him, who've died belonging to him, believing in him. Then he says, verse 24, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God, the Father, 
after destroying every rule and every authority and power. What's he talking about? First of all here, listen, when he uses this word order, it's a military term. It's, the, it's, it's, it's not just about, listen, it's not just about the timing of things, okay? That's not so much what's here. It's hard to kind of squeeze this in to any kind of end times ideas, okay? So it's not very clear, but he's not so much talking about the timing here. It's this picture of, of authority as in our risen king marching into glory and we are then resurrected and we march there with him. He leads his troops to victory is the idea. That's what the picture is. But also when he uses this word destroying in verse 24, it literally means to render useless. And the idea here, listen, is that Jesus is going to, he's going to judge every power. And there's not going to be any power that will not ultimately have to submit to God's power, to Christ's power. This is important. Because every evil authority, every evil ruler, every evil government, every evil sort of corporate headquarters, every kind of evil that you can think possibly happen, every evil criminal enterprise, all of it will bow to Jesus one day. How do we know this? Because he rose from the dead. When the strongest powers of his day said, no, this guy's innocent, and then the Jews said, no, he's guilty, then they couldn't, they couldn't have power over the influence of the crowds. They said, fine, crucify him. They couldn't protect him. And they couldn't bring him back from the dead. But Jesus could say to Pilate, who had him crucified, you know what, you think you have all authority, but you have no authority except which was given to you. And he rose from the dead, showing that he has all authority. This is why we have complete assurance that all injustice will be made right. Do you understand? If, if you're concerned about the state of our planet if you're concerned about how it might be going environmentally, if you're concerned how it might be going morally, if you're concerned about us being able to have resources for our children and grandchildren, if you're concerned about, uh, about wars erupting and destroying the whole planet, if you're concerned about that and you think we have to do something about it, go ahead and try your best because there's a place for us to try our best. But know this, the more you try, the more you're going to recognize we, even collectively, can't fix this but Jesus will and we know that because he rose from the dead this is why Paul can write things in Romans chapter 12 very practical things listen in Romans chapter 12 where he says do not take vengeance my dear friends but leave room for God's wrath for it is written it's it is mine to avenge I will repay says the Lord he says do not be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good. How stupid is it for us to be the kind of people that love our enemies if there's no resurrection? But we can overcome evil with good by loving our enemies. And guess what? When we do that, we show that the, 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 our God who reigns, who has all power, who res resurrected, is good. Because he's a God who loves his enemies and the enemies that refuse to become his family, he has the power to rid them of all injustice. How do we know that? Because Jesus rose from the dead. Do you, do you see how important this is? Do, do you see how our efforts to save the planet, 
or our efforts to have a more righteous government or our efforts to do good for people is pointless if there isn't a resurrection. And it's meaningless if Christ himself hasn't risen. But because he has risen, it's not meaningless. I don't want to take away too much of Johnny Slender because he's going to talk more about that next week. Now look, we don't just learn about God's grace or God's justice through the resurrection, but also God's presence. Look at verse 25. It says this in verse 25. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. Now follow me, this is a bit tricky. Follow me, because there's a lot of this word subjection coming up. He says, verse 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet, but when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him. But all things in subjection are under him, that God may be all in all. It's kind of hard to understand, isn't it? I'm going to read the same section, but from the NIV, because the NIV tends to translate uh, uh, it tends to interpret more when it translates, so sometimes that's helpful, and here's where it's helpful. Listen to this, okay? It says, For he has put, God has put everything under his feet. Now when it says everything has been put under him, it is clear that it does not include God himself. Who put everything under, uh, under Christ? When he does this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. Now, now, listen, here's two things that you need to see about this, about God's presence. One, listen, death itself is going to be slain because Christ slayed death. Death dies. It's the last enemy. Isn't it interesting that we, all of us die, one out of every one person dies, and yet when we're at someone's funeral, it just seems wrong every time. It seems unnatural. I mean, the only time we feel good about it is, one, if we know that they're believers and we believe the resurrection, then we can say with the psalmist, precious in the eyes of the Lord is the death of the saints. Or when someone's been suffering for so long, we can at least say, at least now their suffering's over. Those are the only two times when we kind of think death is ever good. Usually even then we think, but it still feels so wrong and meaningless. Why? Because it's an enemy. It's an intruder into God's good creation, and Jesus conquered it. Death will die. Isn't that good news? Which means we don't have to be afraid to die. We don't have to be afraid to die because Jesus has already conquered death. But also I want you to notice this, okay? This, this phrase subjection over and over again, in, in a nutshell what God's saying is this, what Paul's saying is this. Paul's saying, listen, Christ in conquering death proved that he is God's king he is God's chosen king. Therefore, he is the king of kings and lord of lords. He has all right and authority to rule over all things. So all things will be put under the submission of Christ. And then when all things have finally been put under the submission of Christ, Christ will hand all things back to the Father to say, Father, you're the one who made this all possible. And he'll do so so that we then, listen, we then get to enjoy what he's always enjoyed with his Father. It's only through submission to the resurrected Christ that we get to enjoy what Christ has always enjoyed. Are you following me? This is really important. Because Paul here is not just talking about some kind of weird idea. 
or some kind of concept about life after death. He's talking about because the, the Christ who pierced history, Jesus of Nazareth, who pierced history, who died on a cross, he literally rose from the dead, he literally ascended to heaven, and because that's, those are facts, guess what? Here's another fact. He reigns, and all things will be brought under submission to him. So the wise person says, Lord, I want to submit to you right now, because I've seen no one better, and I've seen no one more powerful, and I've seen no one who gives me more hope. And I long, for whatever motivated you, Jesus, to submit to this. What motivated Jesus to submit to the Father? What motivates Jesus to say, here, Father, it's all for you? The Father. He knows God. God's presence. Gosh, I've said it a thousand times. God can't give you anything better than what? Himself. What does God give you in Christ? Himself. He says, here I am. You can have me. What better thing can you imagine? If you think you can imagine something better, that's the, that's the false God you worship. Now, here's the reality. We get God's presence. Why? Because all who submit to Jesus get to enjoy God forever because that's why Jesus came. His resurrection proves we get to enjoy God forever. Hey, when does forever start? Anybody have an idea? Right now. <laughs> now, right now, we see through a, a mirror dimly, so it's harder for us to enjoy God, um, you know, uh, than it will be when we see him face to face. When this, when our, before our own resurrection, it's hard for us to enjoy God as he is, but we can still taste and see the Lord is good. We can still know a joy inexpressible and full of glory. We can still have a peace that surpasses understanding. We can still see God move through us in ways that go, wow, Lord, you did that, not me. You, we can still experience God and enjoy God now. And this is just, well, it's like, it's like, where, where was I the other day? We were at the beach. Sarah and I went to the beach yesterday. And we're sitting outside. We went, ordered, went to the pub and ordered a lunch. And we're just sitting there. You could smell all that was cooking in the kitchen. And you could, as you smell those burgers and chips, and anybody hungry? You could smell this wonderful food being made. You could smell it, and you just thought, that's coming to us soon, baby. <laughs> right now, this side of heaven, we get an aroma of life in Jesus. Then, face to face, we're going to know as we're known. Why do we know this? The resurrection. Do you get it? Is this clear yet how important it is? See, here's, here's what, what, what Paul would write in, in Romans chapter 11. He would say, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For notice, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. You know what, listen, the more you live in the reality of Christ's resurrection, the more you and I live this way, the more we are thankful, Lord, every good thing comes from you. The more we live in light of the resurrection, we recognize, Lord, anything I can do for you, it's got to be you doing it through me. It comes through you. And the more we live in the reality, in the light of the reality of, God's, of Christ's resurrection, the more we recognize, Lord, and all things are to you. You are leading us to yourself, and we cannot wait to see you in your glory. 
That's normal Christianity, folks. And can we be really honest? That's not always our experience. As much as I would hope we could leave here full of joy about the resurrection, I think there needs to be a realization of this last point. Because when Paul writes to Corinth, the Corinthian church, these truths echo into our situation. See, his resurrection motivates our repentance. So after Paul shares these things with them, he goes on to say in verse 29, otherwise, why, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Now, it's very confusing what he means here. And so you want to ask me what it might mean, we can talk about the 30 different reasons that people come up for. But just know this, Paul's basically saying, if baptism has to be recognizing death and resurrection, which it does, okay? Baptism is about you recognizing that I died with Christ and risen with Christ. What's the point of being baptized if there's no resurrection? Come on, it's dumb. What are you doing? So he says also, but look at this, verse 30, he says, why are we in danger every hour? Paul, of course, was persecuted, and the apostles were persecuted often. He says, I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. I'm at death's door every day, he says. I'm going through these kinds of things. He says, what do I gain, humanly speaking, uh, when I fought the beasts at Ephesus, if the dead are not raised? Now, the beasts at Ephesus are probably false teachers who came against Paul. He says, notice, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Let me ask you a real serious question. Which describes your life more? I die daily, or let's eat and drink. There's nothing wrong with eating and drinking. We don't have a theology of, of pursuing suffering for suffering's sake. When Jesus, the resurrected Christ, wanted to reveal himself to his disciples, he said he made breakfast on a beach. Sounds pretty good to me. Pleasure is a good thing. But when our lives are, are about, oh, Let's eat and drink because we're going to be dead tomorrow. There's no faith in the resurrection there. When our lives are about, Lord, I, I die daily. I, whatever, whatever you call me to do, I, I need to do. Listen. What, what, what Paul says here is, is really important because this is, he's simply echoing what Jesus calls discipleship, what Jesus calls every one of us to do. Listen to this. Listen. Paul says, if any, Jesus says, sorry, more important, Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. That's deny self-allegiance. That's the idea. Let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whatever would, would save his life, for whoever, I'm sorry, would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Is Jesus saying, have no pleasure, do nothing good in your life? No. He's saying, let your whole life be surrendered to me and be about me being made known to the nations. So that whatever you do, you're doing for gospel's sake. Let it be for that. Why would you stay in a bad marriage if there's no resurrection? You might hope to die soon if you're in a bad marriage, I don't know. Why would you stay in a bad marriage if there's no resurrection? If, if it's basically you just kind of do your best. Why say, Lord, look, I tried, 
They're not interested. I'm out. You stay in a bad marriage for Jesus' sake. I'm not talking about abuse here. If you're in an abusive marriage, that's different. There's, there's a biblical means for you to be separated as far as I'm concerned. So if there's abuse going on, know that you, you can talk to us. We're a safe space. I'm talking about a bad marriage. I'm talking about you've drifted apart. I'm talking about there's no intimacy. There's no uh, oneness in Christ. There's no growth together. I'm talking about there's no mutual encouragement or help or support. I'm talking about that. What would keep you moving forward in that? Jesus, the resurrected Christ. Because the one who's resurrected from the dead can resurrect your dead marriage. Why would you endure with wayward children? Why don't you just write them off and go, you know what? Fine, do what you want to do. Because a resurrected Christ resurrects wayward children. What motivates us to say, Lord, I want to follow you and not lead my own life. I want to do what you want me to do. What motivates us to do that? To turn back to him and say, Lord, you're worthy because he's alive. He's alive for our sake. Now Paul gets really pointed here in verses 33 to 34. I'm just about done. Paul says, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. He's probably quoting one of their own poets there. What bad company is he talking about? In this context, he's talking about people who devalue the reality of the resurrection, both Christ's resurrection and our own. He says, verse 34, wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning for some have no knowledge of God and I say this to your shame. If, if your co-workers, if your family members would be surprised that you're a Christian. There should be a bit of shame. Not condemnation. Not Jesus saying, you don't belong to me, be gone. But shame, like, I've blown it. You see, here's the reality. The resurrected Christ, listen, teaches us, as we talked last week, teaches us to walk away from ungodliness and pursue the life that Christ has prepared for us and provided for us. Because he's been resurrected, we can know we've been, been, been washed clean and we can be those vessels that can be filled with God's spirit. And by the power of God's spirit, we can do all the things that God's called us to do. But here's the reality. Paul's being really clear. He's saying, listen, the resurrection is what motivates our repentance. It's what makes us take sin seriously. It's because we want people to know God. We don't want to be the kind of people that would be shocked to find out we're Christians. We don't want to be the kind of people, and I say that shocked by our lifestyle. But they'd be shocked by our lifestyle that we would actually say that we follow Jesus. We don't want to be those kind of people because we want them to know Jesus. This is not about the fact that we still sin because we sin all the time. This is about the fact that as Jesus followers, we're called to practice repentance 
We, we, I think the phrase I used earlier in 1 Corinthians was we normalize repentance. It's a normal thing to say, God, I shouldn't have yelled. I messed up. I've asked them for forgiveness. I'm asking you for forgiveness. Lord, I'm being selfish right here. Uh, forgive me, and I'm going to go ask them for, for, for their forgiveness. Or maybe they don't know how you're being selfish, and you just say, Lord, forgive me. I don't want to be so selfish. Change me. I want to turn back to you. I believe Jesus is alive, and would you change me by your Holy Spirit? Bring that life, his life, into mine. Now, when he mentions drunkenness here, drunkenness was one of the sins that the Corinthians were guilty of. You can read about that in chapter 11. But I don't think he's referring to that. I think what he's referring to is any lack of sober-mindedness on our part when it comes to sin as Jesus followers. Anytime we're casual about sin as Jesus followers, I think this is who Paul's talking about. He's saying, let's knock it off. Christ is alive. Paul said this, remember 1 Corinthians chapter 5? Paul said, but now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother who is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or idolatry, or is an adulterer, a, a reviler, a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. And if you remember when we, we taught this, if you want to go back to that, that, that we're not talking about, again, people who struggle with sin. We're talking about people who refuse to repent. Okay? It's people who refuse to repent. There's a process involved, a long, patient process, because we all struggle with sin. But we struggle with sin because we struggle to believe that Jesus is alive. The way we learn to have victory over sin is to trust the one who's risen, that he dwells in us by his spirit. And he who rose the dead can raise the dead in me so I can walk with him in newness of life. But lest we try to get out from underneath this conviction, let me read this last few verses and then I'll pray. Acts chapter 17. Paul is talking to uh, non-Christian religious people, not Jews, but people who worshipped all kinds of different false gods on Mars Hill. Here's what he says. He says, God made from one man every nation, or one, uh, I'm sorry, from one man every nation of mankind to live in all the face of the earth. That's Adam. Having determined periods, allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling, and this is why, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, yet he's actually not far from one of us. So he's talking to pagans who worship false gods and he's saying, listen, God has you in this place at this time because he wants you to know him. And he says, now God commands all people everywhere to repent because God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness, notice, by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. We don't preach judgment to people in a way that makes them think that we're better than them. We preach judgment to people that says, look, we all need to be sober about the judgment of Christ. And the good news is, he's taken that judgment on himself at the cross. He's made a way for us not to be judged when he returns, but to have our judgment be, be dealt with now through his death and resurrection so that we can know that he declares us innocent who were guilty because he paid the price for us as the innocent one.